Good morning. Hey, it's so good to see your faces. I was just standing in the back just worshiping, and I just, I love this church. I love each one of you, and I love Jesus, man. I'm ready to get into his word, and I feel so honored to be able to do that this morning. I want to start our time together by actually sharing a little bit of my story. Now, some of you uh, may have heard me in preach and past sermons. You maybe heard more of the wild parts of my journey. You know that maybe I, uh, the fact that I grew up in the Middle East for about 10 years and I've traveled all around the globe. I've been to about like 40 countries. But before all of that, my life was a little bit more simple. See, I grew up in actually a very small town called Peninsula, Ohio. It's nestled in the Ohio River Valley right between Akron and Cleveland. And the interesting thing about this place, it is actually in the middle of a national park. And so if you look at these pictures behind me, you'll see that this is actually where I grew up. That's the house that we lived in. It was in the middle of a, uh, of a national park, uh, the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. And you can actually see from this newspaper clipping over here that my family shares a very obscure piece of American history. We're actually the first people in American history to buy a house back from the National Park Service. So how random is that? Like, we, that wasn't our desire. We weren't trying to do that. But the Lord gifted us that house. My dad pastored a small church just right across the street from where we lived. It's actually right through those woods. And this house was beautiful. It was built before the Civil War, this old farmhouse. And, uh, and I can just still go back in my mind's eye to this property. And I close my eyes and I can imagine the pine trees towering over me and just making me feel so small. I remember the apple orchard in the north part of the property and when the apples would fall, getting closer uh, to the, in the fall season, that the deer would sweep through the property and we'd sit out there and watch the deer and all the wildlife. I remember the, uh, the grapevines that would stretch all across the western side of the property. We would sometimes eat them, but more often than not, we would use them as ammo to throw at each other as siblings. I remember the, the tree fort that was nestled into the very corner of the property where we would spend hours and hours and hours. And man, this house, it was a gift from God. Like I said, built before the Civil War. My mom made this like farmhouse cool before, way before Chip and Joanna even came on the scenes. <laughs> it was such a cool house to grow up in. But something interesting happened. Right after about 15 years, my family, we were all back in the same place. And if you know anything about my family, that's a miracle in and of itself. And we were back in Ohio, and we all got in a car, and we drove down to the national park. And I remember, we kind of wound the bend that came up to this property, and there stood the house that we grew up in. And everything that I remember about this house was, like, completely shattered. And it was honestly kind of heartbreaking. I think we were all, like, crying, like, oh, oh. It was ugly. The house that was once beautiful with the fresh white paint and the green trim and the lilac trees, it was overgrown. The paint was chipping and it was weathered. The yard was overgrown with weeds. There was bundles of sticks and, and it was just, it, looked, it was in chaos. It was in shambles. We were like, man, that is not the house that we grew up in. See, what started off as beautiful over time, it hadn't stood that test of time. It's exactly where we're at in the book of Galatians. The apostle Paul had shared the gospel in this region of Galatia. And the people there, they had received the gospel. And the gospel actually started to multiply and it started to go forth. And there was growth. And so Paul is writing this letter of Galatians actually back now to this network of churches in this area. And this letter is actually a corrective letter because he shared the gospel with them. They started off well 
but over time, they started to look a little different. They didn't quite look maybe as beautiful as they once were when they received the liberating truth of the gospel. Now, I think this is important to say. When we say the word gospel, what this means is actually the good news. Well, you should ask them the good news of what? What's the good news of Jesus? And so it's the fact that Jesus actually came to this earth, right? He took on the form of flesh, and he came to this earth, and he lived a perfect life, lived the perfect life that we ourselves couldn't live. And then he actually died to pay the penalty for the sin that we have brought to earth. And he died on account of that sin so that whoever calls on the name of Jesus, whoever puts their faith in him, might have the hope and the promise of new life. That is the essence of the gospel. And so this church, these churches, they had strayed from this true and liberating gospel. They started to look different than when they had started the journey. And what happened, and the problem is, is that there was actually a group of people in this church who were preaching a false gospel. They were known as the Judaizers, and they were preaching that, yes, faith in Jesus is good, but there's something else that you need to do to actually earn salvation. We learned about this last week in Pastor Ryan's message. They were preaching a gospel of faith and works. Well, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, if you've read any of his 13 letters in the New Testament, you know this is a big no-no. Like, Paul is a total grace guy. Right? And so I think if he had like a Twitter nowadays, actually, he probably wouldn't have a Twitter. Let's be honest. He'd probably be on like the no social media fan club. Maybe he'd even rebuke us for having social media. But if he had a Twitter, I think his bio would read like, Paul, saved by God's grace. It would just simply read that. And so what happens is that they're starting to preach a false gospel and then they're actually waging like character assassination on Paul. Now, I don't know about you, I dread election season here in our country. It may surprise you to learn I actually studied political science. I thought I was gonna go into a career uh, in politics, but man, every time election season rolls around, I'm like, Lord, thank you, I am not in that environment. Because it's not enough that we attack like our opponent's platform or we attack their policies, we attack the person. Not we, but like it's, it gets nasty in some of those ads, right? They start going after people. Well, that's what's happening. The Judaizers, they're trying to discredit Paul. They're trying to discredit his authority. And so not only are they preaching a false gospel, but they're now they're starting to attack him. And so Paul writes, to this, he writes this letter to the churches in Galatia to confront this. And in today's scripture, we're going to see how Paul, he writes this letter to show that freedom is given by God as a free gift of grace that liberates from us from our past before our lives with Christ and it allows us to walk in a new identity. Are you ready to hear the word of God? Yeah. yeah. Let's jump in. We're going to read Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. I'll give you a second to turn there. This is in the English Standard Version. It reads this. It says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism by many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me 
in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, and listen to this, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Lord, we take a minute to honor your word. Remember the words in the Psalms that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We need your word to shape us, to correct us. So Holy Spirit, as we tune our attention to the word of God, would you move in our hearts? Would you move in our hearts and show us Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is how ultimately freedom is a gift from God. Freedom is a gift from God. Now, Paul is going to start his defense by actually using two pieces of objective evidence. Now, objective evidence is evidence that is based on facts. And so Paul is going to start by defending the gospel by laying out the facts. And here is the first point in his argument. He said, hey, I wasn't converted by any man, and I didn't gather parts from the gospel from any other people or apostles. The objective evidence is, is that I received this gospel directly from the source. Now, if you know me, you know I'm a big coffee fan. And listen, not just because coffee tastes great, but because I grew up in the 90s, right, when my parents, all they drank was that nasty, nasty stuff called Folgers. <laughs> Folgers. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, the best part of waking up is not Folgers in your cup. It is not. Okay, Folgers, you can taste like the mold, the staleness of it. If you want good coffee, you got to go directly to the source, not to the supermarket where it sat on a shelf for a while. You got to go directly to the source. And Paul's saying, I have gone, actually, I didn't go. The source came directly to me. He's saying, Jesus met me. And what he's referring to here is actually back to Acts chapter 9. The author of Acts, Luke, he wrote a detailed story of how Paul actually was converted. His previous name was Saul, and he was on the road to Damascus. And on this journey, Jesus actually showed up in a vision. It blinded Saul. I mean, it was like a wild experience. It's a great story. Read it if you got some time this week, Acts chapter 9. But in that moment, he has an experience with Jesus, and it changes his life. It changes him. And so he's saying, man, I got this gospel directly from the source. And not only did I get it directly from the source, he has an alibi to back it up. Look at verses 17 through 22. It says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. So what he's saying is that like where the other apostles were in Jerusalem, I didn't go directly to them. I actually went out like way out in the desert. He's saying it wasn't man's opinion that actually shaped this. It was the Lord himself and his spirit. And so Paul went off on a multi-year journey being trained up in this gospel, not by any man, but from the Lord himself. There's not a lot of details there, 
But the important thing to catch in is that he wasn't trained up by other apostles. He says, I have the alibi to prove it. There's a detailed journey that I took. I didn't have FaceTime. I wasn't emailing back and forth with the disciples. Like this gospel, I received directly from the source. And then his second piece of objective evidence actually is from Galatians chapter 2, at the very beginning portion. I'm just going to summarize it for us this morning. But eventually, he did go up to Jerusalem. And what he did is actually he presented this gospel that he was preaching to the apostles. He wanted to be so sure He wanted to be so sure that he was preaching the right thing, even after years of being trained in this. And the apostles, they gave him the stamp of approval. They said, yes, this is the true gospel. Now notice, it wasn't like, uh, yeah, you got most of it right, but you got to like change this part, you know, or maybe edit the note. Like he was preaching the gospel through and through. That's amazing. Think about that. Paul actually never met Jesus, as far as we know, face-to-face in the, in, the, in the form of human flesh before Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. He met Jesus in a vision. All the other apostles had met Jesus and had journeyed with him for a number of years, most of them, right? And so the apostle Paul is saying, like, I wasn't a part of that. I wasn't even really friends with these guys, but yet it matches up and lines up perfectly, That would be so hard to do if he was inventing and making up his own gospel. And so he's laying out this objective evidence as defense of the gospel. I think Paul really, it's important to take away that he ultimately came in alignment with God and not the other way around. Do you get that? He was the one who actually changed and changed his belief and was trained up in the gospel. And I think some of the threats sometimes in our culture is that we get so rooted maybe in in theological positions, and don't get me wrong, like studying theology, like loving theology is great, but we get so rooted maybe in tradition and beliefs that we actually forget to remain sensitive to the word of God. And what we do is we actually start twisting scripture to fit what we're trying to believe and what we're trying to promote rather than believing in the true gospel. And so here's what I want to read. At Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this. It says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. We have to be a people who love the word of God. We want revival We're praying for revival. We're praying for the lost to come to salvation. We're praying for each one of us to have a softening in our own hearts. We have to love the word of God. We have to get back to being rooted in the gospel and to make sure that our lives align through and through with this word. We can't dance around hard topics. In fact, I think sometimes even in Christianity, there's people who have discredited Paul. Just like these Judaizers do. They say, I don't really like what he preaches on this, so I'm going to discount it. Paul was preaching the gospel. If you reject Paul, it's to actually reject the gospel. We have to bring our lives into alignment with the word of God. And it's just such a simple application for us. Write this question down if you're taking notes this morning. Do you love the word of God? Are you fearful of it? Are you fearful of the conviction of when you open that? Do you try to avoid parts of it? Do you argue against it? Do you twist it? Or do you embrace it? Because it's meant to correct us. It's meant to help change us. It's meant to be a guide for us. 
And it's ultimately a gift from God. So the objective evidence, it lines up. The facts are the facts, but Paul is going to shift his argument a little bit from objective evidence to focusing on subjective evidence. Now remember, again, objective evidence is based on facts. Subjective evidence is based on experience. And Paul knows this. He's saying it's not enough. Like, I wasn't changed by facts. I was changed by experience. The facts are important to point back to, but it's actually the experience that changes Paul. That's our second point this morning, is that when we receive this gift of grace that's given by God, then God changes our identity. And Scripture tells us this. It tells us that man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. You see, Paul had a plan from early in his childhood. He was a zealous Jew. He was passionate about his beliefs, so much so that he went to great lengths to actually resist and to fight against Christianity. He was raised up. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was raised up as a Pharisee, a devout Pharisee. He was like a Jew of Jews. Jesus was very offensive to Paul. Yet he has this encounter of grace that's given by God and he's changed. He did everything in his power to fight against Christianity in his previous life, to stop the spread of the gospel, but then he has an experience with Jesus. And all he can do is just give credit to God's grace. Look at verse 15. It says, but when he who had formed me, who are, that, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What he's saying is that from my mother's womb, the Lord had a plan of salvation and forgiveness for me. This is powerful stuff. That even when he went his own way, and even when he bought into persecution of Christianity, that God was working behind the scenes. He was working in the dark with a plan of salvation and forgiveness to Paul. That is grace. That is a power of grace. And listen, we're going to get in a little bit more detail this in a second, but we know the Apostle Paul, he wasn't a good dude. He talks about his testimony a lot. Look at his own words, actually. Look at verses 13. It says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. He was doing evil acts. He was persecuting the church. He was hauling people off to prison. He was dividing families. And worst of all, he was actually participating in murder of Christians. Yet even at his worst, God's grace shows up and it changes him. And it's this type of grace that actually changed Paul from a persecutor to a pastor. It's the same type of grace that changes us from prisoners to people of praise. Because we're not who we were. We're not who we were. The word of God teaches us that we are a new creation in Christ. When we put our trust and our faith in him, in him alone, the story changes. We're not who we were and we are not dead in those sins. To bring it back to our metaphor of the house, that it's actually when we recognize that the house is way past maintenance, that it's overdue, that the pain is dried up and it's cracked, 
It's in these moments where the perfect timing of God's grace actually shows up. And his grace, it never fails us. It never fails us. I came across this social media post this week talking about the Asbury revival. And it said this. It said, the movements of the spirit in Western evangelicalism always exist in the middle of a cultural moment. I find it interesting that God would mark this outpouring of the spirit that's happening right now in our country with a tangible sense of peace for a generation with unprecedented anxiety. I don't know about you, but I was here last week, and man, I felt peace in God's presence. The words of Isaiah 26, 3, he keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. When we focus on Jesus, anxiety has no place. It has no place, but the peace of God rules over our hearts. Another way that God is marking this outpouring is a restorative sense of belonging for a generation amidst an epidemic of loneliness. Our world is so lonely. People are so lonely, yet God has given us the gift of community. And I see it in this church. I see people just showing up for one another time and time again. We have around 70% of our people signed up in life groups because they understand the value of doing life together. They understand this importance of having a place to belong. Another marker of this move of God is an authentic hope for a generation that's been marked by depression. It is a lie straight from the pit of hell that your future and that your promise is depression here on earth. It may be a battle that you fight, but let me tell you, Jesus has the victory over depression. And I read the words of the Apostle Paul through and through. Pick one of his letters, any of them. Go to 1 Corinthians and just start anywhere with one of his letters and you won't get far until he starts talking about hope. He starts talking about hope because let me tell you, our world needs hope. God did not create us for loneliness and depression. He's marking a new work here in this season by doing things opposite of what culture said is our future and what is our promise. Amen? I love this. Another marker is a leadership emphasizing of a protective humility and relationship with power for a generation deeply hurt by the abuse of religious power. Whew. Right? The last two years, it's been all con conversations around deconstruction and the negativity surrounding religion. Let me tell you, let's break that stuff off and let's come back to the relationship with Jesus. We all have to walk this path of humility. We know that this church isn't about one or two or three or four or five people. It's about the body of Christ operating together under the authority of Jesus. Do you believe that? Yeah. yeah, and when we start to believe that, what happens is that you realize you have a purpose to play in the body of Christ. That you don't get to sit idle on the bench. That you were created with the purpose to participate. Man, the Lord just wants to long to work through you. He wants to show you his grace so that he can move in power through your life. He makes himself God. He makes himself personally known to us in Jesus Christ. He seeks us out in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our brokenness, to free us from a life of sin and death and to restore hope into each one of us. Reflection moment. How is God's gift of free grace and his presence, how is that changing you now? How is it changing you now? 
in your quiet times, even in your times of just worship on Sunday? Is it, is it hard to shift out of a place on self-focus? Is it hard to shift out of that place of anxiety or depression or fear or frustration? Are you encountering the mercy of God? Are you encountering his grace? His love for you that he has changed your identity once and for all. That you're not who you were. That you are a new creation in Christ. Do you remind that? Do you speak that to your, do you speak that to your soul on a daily basis? We've got to be committed to keeping our eyes on the gospel at all times. And I just preach to myself to this all, I preach this to myself all of the time, keeping the gospel at the forefront of my life. When we embrace this new identity, what happens is that the old self really dies. And then what happens is we receive this gift of grace and then we're freed from our past. We're freed from our past. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. So listen, Paul, he's writing to a group of people who are ultimately who are familiar with his past. They know his story. He worked and toiled among them. They would have known his testimony that he was saved from a life of persecuting Christians, right? Saved from being a persecutor and became a pastor. But yet, as he's pointing them back to the hope that's found in the gospel, he doesn't shy away from his own testimony. He doesn't shy away from his past. Remember the words in verse 13. It says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Paul had his life planned out. He knew the trajectory that he was on. He was a Pharisee. He was trained up in this and he was going to do everything that he could to stop Christianity. And Jesus shows up and he has this experience and it changes him. And it changes him. But his testimony from the past, it isn't a lingering source of shame for Paul. It's actually something that he draws back to time and time again throughout his letters. Because he's know there's, there's power. There's power in his testimony. And that's the evidence of the gospel. Paul's saying, look at me. Look at a changed life. I had a plan for my life, and it was not this. Yet here I am. Yet here I am. Listen, at the end of the day, religion is ultimately it's rooted in control. This whole argument of faith plus works, it says that there's something more that we need to do. Something more that we need to do, maybe to atone for the sins of the past, or maybe to make up for our mistakes. Listen, there is nothing. There is nothing we need to do but have faith alone in Jesus Christ. There is nothing else. And if we fool ourselves into thinking that there's something that we contribute to the gospel, it, it pulls us into really dangerous territories. I think it's really important to say the only thing that mankind actually had was were able to contribute to the gospel was the cross that Jesus Christ hung on. We were the ones who invited sin. We were the ones who made a mess of this world. We were the ones that built the cross that our Savior bled and died on. That's the only contribution to the gospel that we made. 
But if we fool ourselves into thinking that there is a work that we need to do, or if there's shame that holds us in our past, what happens is that it actually starts to become a source of idolatry in our lives. And what idolatry is, is worshiping something that isn't God. And it's not just idolatry, it's actually a form of self-worship. Do you understand that? When we stray from this gospel of just faith alone in Jesus, it actually becomes a form of self-worship because we pretend that we have something to contribute to it and we have nothing. It is grace alone. It is grace alone that saves us, church. It is grace alone. To live a life of freedom, it's ultimately to remember what you've been freed from. To remember the chains that once held you and to rejoice and to worship. And that's why we sing with boldness here. That's why we dance. That's why we celebrate. It's because we're a church that can't be happy enough in what Jesus has done for us. Paul had a scary reputation. Listen, he was well known for his hatred. He had a reputation that went far beyond Jerusalem where actually believers lived in fear of him and his past life. I can't imagine what it was like actually being Paul. And after years and having a reputation like that, going back to Jerusalem, seeing people look at you, flinch maybe a little bit, start to whisper, start to gossip, I think maybe that's even some of the reason why Paul just continues just to go back to the gospel and to preach grace to his own self so he doesn't have to live under the weight of shame and he can, be li he can live free to be who God created him to be. There's power in that. Look what the gospel can do. Look at verse 23. It says, they, were, uh, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. God got the glory from Paul being completely open and completely honest, from Paul having the willingness to live in that new identity that Jesus gave him and to ultimately be set free from the shame of the past. I just want to take a moment to get real vulnerable. One of our core values here at Awaken Church is to go deep and to get real. And I just want to say, all of us have skeletons in our closet. All of us have had things in our life that we've put away, that we've hidden in the deep recesses of our hearts to say, I'll deal with that maybe some point in the future. And I just feel like as we as a church come back to the liberating truth of the gospel, we have to stand in freedom from what God has freed us from. I've loved the Lord from a young age. I came to salvation when I was around six years old. I still remember that moment in the living room of recognizing that I had a love for God, but that I was actually a little sinful human at six years old and that I needed Jesus. And I remember crying out to him and praying to him and making him Lord and Savior of my life. But over the years, there was hardships and there was challenges. 
probably the worst being when I was 11 years old, being exposed to hardcore porn. It wasn't something that I was pursuing, it was actually something that was prevented or presented to me. But the issue is, is that created a stronghold in my life from 11 years old. And year after year, that sin, it grew. It grew in the hidden darkness of my life. It grew as I was trying to understand the complexities of just growing up, and it grew. And it actually led me away from the love of God. And I started to pursue worldly things. And as that sin grew, it grew into other areas of my life to promiscuity and to chasing passions of the flesh. And it actually led to me my darkest and most broken moment. See, it led to an unwanted pregnancy that led to the choice of an abortion. I can relate to the words of Paul that he says. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I have done evil things in my life. I have participated in wicked sins. But yet even at my worst, when I was murderous and full of lust, even at my worst, I was the house that was marked for condemnation. I was wrapped in red tape. I was the building that was falling apart. And even at my worst, Jesus looked upon me and said, that's one I want to die for. How do we understand that type of grace? I am so undeserving of his love and his mercy, yet still he loves me. Yet still he speaks worth into my life. He's freed me from the power of shame to proclaim with my lips, my only hope is Jesus. Romans chapter five, verses one through five, it says this. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus looked at your broken and tattered mess and he says, that's a person I'm willing to die for. That is one I'm willing to put it all on the line for. And his love and his mercy, it is extravagant. And when we think we've hit the fullness of his mercy, we realize like we're swimming in the kiddie pool. His mercy is an ocean. His mercy is an ocean and it pursues us. And it doesn't relent because God is a God of love. I said it at the start and I'll say it to close. We want revival. We want to see that work of God that started here continue. We better put our faces on the ground. 
We better get low and let pride and let control be broken off our lives through the power of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Because listen, there's nothing that you have to offer God, but he has everything to offer you. And when we open ourselves up and we stop pretending, we stop hiding, there is overwhelming peace. There is overwhelming hope for you. Do you believe it? As we go back into a time of worship, I just want to invite, our pastors are going to make their way forward. Hey, listen, I know it's hard being vulnerable. It's hard living a life of authenticity. Not everybody needs to know your story, but somebody needs to know your story. And if there's parts of your life that have become hardened to the truth of the gospel, if there's parts of your life where you're resisting the mercy that Jesus longs to pour out, would today be the day that you take a step of surrender and to lay whatever that is down at the feet so Jesus can free you from shame and so that you can walk in freedom and this newness life.